Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you very much, Stephanie, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect workshop, Understanding Diagnostic Technologies and Biomarkers. Now, this is a very new and a very important topic, a growing topic, and I know that, that you have a lot of interest in this topic, and we have a wonderful uh, experts on this call today to really explain this to you in a way that will make it more understandable, I think, to many of you. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and it's because of that collaboration and all of your interest that we have so many of you on the call today. So we have over 656 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from all different parts of the United States, and we also have international participants from Canada, Colombia, Tanzania, and the United Kingdom. So you really come from all over the world, and it's a bit of a global call. Now, today's program um, has been made possible by uh, BioDesic, Inc., an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of the program and also for their collaborative partnership in making this program possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I, I want to uh, begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Richard Grala, and Dr. Grala is Professor of Medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine. And Dr. Grala is going to really set the tone for the today's program and present an overview of diagnostic technologies and biomarkers, how precision, how precision medicine helps to inform treatment decisions, and quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Grala. Well, thank you. Uh, hello to all, and thanks again to uh, Carolyn Messner for making this very timely program possible. At this uh, as this presentation is an introduction, I see my role uh, to outline why it's useful for us to discuss the new term precision medicine and its impact on the increasing importance of modern diagnostic technologies. We'll hear presentations from my colleagues addressing in more detail where we are today with these concepts. I think that all would agree that in medicine in general, and particularly in cancer care, we're in a time of real change in delivering more precise treatment and care. It's still early days in precision medicine, but already definite benefits are available for many but selected patients and with the strong promise for continued major advances. Well, first, what is precision medicine? While many definitions are possible, one that I think works well comes from the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, and states that precision medicine is an emerging approach for disease prevention and treatment that takes into account people's individual variations in genes, environment, and lifestyle. For those who'd like to read more extensively on this, I'd recommend going to Google and then Googling Precision Medicine Initiative you can then go right to the NIH website. Among other materials, there's a free download of a well-written outline that was published just two months ago in the New England Journal of Medicine by Dr. Drs. Francis Collins and Harold Varmus in their roles as NIH and National Cancer Institute directors. The article is actually quite readable. In brief, precision medicine takes individual variations among us into account 
and in treatment takes advantages of these differences to recommend more tailored or precise therapy for each individual. Today, the precision in therapy is largely based on variations in gene patterns or tumor cell characteristics, and we'll hear examples of this from several of the speakers uh, on the program today. No longer is it sufficient just to say that a person has breast cancer or colon cancer or lung cancer and then to plan treatment. But in each one of these and in many other cancers, having more precise knowledge about the genes or pathways that are acting in a detrimental way for that person can lead to very specific therapy. Having such knowledge of any predisposition or tendency to develop different diseases or cancers could also guide in individualized prevention or screening strategies for each of us. Dr. Drs. Collins and Varmus importantly emphasize that the individualized molecular or genetic approach of precision medicine should enrich and modify but should not replace successful approaches to cancer. I believe that genetically-based precision medicine can integrate and build on known key clinical factors that each of us bring to our physicians and to help make cancer care even more precise by combining those. This means bringing in quality of life factors as well as molecular features. If we're to apply the promise of precision medicine and look at molecular aspects of an individual's cancer, then we need to be able to provide more information or diagnoses to a much greater extent uh, than in prior days. The multidisciplinary approach to cancer has been very important for many years. That is, having healthcare and oncology professionals of a variety of skills teaming up for every patient and family. In precision medicine, the crucial integration of molecular diagnosis guiding precise treatment demands even greater attention to this multidisciplinary approach. Treating physicians need to work ever more closely with colleagues in imaging and in molecular pathology. Even the laboratory doctor performing ever more sophisticated genetic analyses needs to understand the needs of colleagues and to be part of the team, not to mention the skills of nurses and others to be able to carry out patient care and treatment plans precisely and perfectly. On the surface, the fundamentals of diagnostic approaches appear to be somewhat similar to what they have been recently. First, there is imaging. Imaging, or diagnostic radiology, has undergone a revolution during my medical career. From ever more precise CAT scans to MRIs to PET scans, each with different purposes, to interventional radiology and much more, these techniques allow a look into the human body, typically without discomfort, in ways that help with initial diagnosis and with staging of the extent of a cancer in remarkable ways. They also provide screening for cancer in particularly susceptible individuals, a complement to precision medicine in many circumstances. By using these imaging techniques, interventional radiologists are often able to achieve a safe and less disruptive biopsy, commonly on an outpatient basis that provides tissue for molecular analysis by the pathologist. Communication among the treating team the imaging team, the pathology team, is vital to assure that proper tissue samples are obtained so that molecular analysis can be performed as needed to give the information that can guide treatment. 
the pathologist, as we'll hear, still gains valuable knowledge by examining a biopsy or cells under the microscope as before, but sophisticated special studies such as immunohistochemistry often enhance the diagnosis. And then molecular genetic studies may indicate which pathway activates the cancer in that particular individual or causes resistance to therapy. This is the basis of precision medicine for many patients and allows individualization of treatment. Increasingly, it has been found that activating pathways commonly found in one type of cancer, say in melanoma, may less often be detected in another cancer, perhaps lung cancer. But this information could lead to a more precise treatment choice in either malignancy. Before going on to our next speaker, Dr. Kerr, who will give more information about the pathologist's role in giving a precise glimpse into cancer, I'd like to quote Dr. Varmus once more, and this time from an interview he gave on television a little over two years ago, which I think crystallizes current progress. He said, cancer patients are living longer and better lives thanks to better symptom control, more effective therapies, and a deeper understanding of cancer. As you can see, the new skills and collaboration of all members of your healthcare team is increasingly important if we're to realize the full promise of precision medicine. The following speakers on this program will give real examples of how precision medicine is already being brought to the forefront of cancer care. I'll now turn the program back to Carolyn Messner, and thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grala. Really uh, exceptional introduction and really explaining um, this, the concepts to everyone, and, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. Our, our next speaker um, is Dr. Sarah Kerr. Dr. Kerr is Senior Associate Consultant, Division of Anatomic Pathology, Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, Assistant Professor, Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Kerr is going to address the role of pathologists in cancer diagnosis and molecular testing. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Kerr. Thank you. Thank you, Carolyn, and thank you to Cancer Care for inviting me to share how pathologists are involved every day in the care of cancer patients. Um, one thing that uh, our audience might not know is that pathologists uh, do more than just forensic testing. So you might watch TV and see uh, you know, CSI, Dr. G, Medical Examiner, and Law and & Order. Those are pathologists, but most pathologists are actually more focused on cancer care. Uh, we go to medical school with, with other, your other doctors and then go on to more specialized training in how to run a clinical testing laboratory. We learn about routine blood tests, but also learn about how to use a microscope to look at, at tissue samples and, and make the right diagnosis under a microscope. So most of what I do every day and most of what my colleagues do every day is look at, at very small samples of cancer tissue that are taken by gastrointestinal doctors, lung doctors, radiologists, and surgeons. And this is really one of the first steps in precision medicine. So sometimes I am available when they are uh, doing the procedure to obtain the tissue to make sure that they're getting a large enough sample of tumor. Sometimes pathologists help surgeons as well completely resect cancers by examining the tissues around the cancer to make sure that, that everything that can be taken out has, has been removed. Uh, and then after the tissue is taken out of the body, a, a laboratory goes through a process that uh, makes the tissue uh, into something that can be looked at on glass slides under a microscope to, to make a diagnosis. 
And what you might not know is that uh, making the right diagnosis can sometimes be very difficult. And so sometimes pathologists struggle and we have to order additional tests to be sure about the diagnosis. And as Dr. Grala had mentioned, sometimes that, that includes tests called immunohistochemistry. Uh, sometimes other molecular tests, including DNA tests and RNA tests, are increasingly used to help make the correct diagnosis uh, as we start to split out precise diagnoses that are important for treatment. Sometimes these molecular tests are used to sort out also differences in opinion in difficult cases. You should know that even though uh, you might not ever meet your pathologist, it's very likely that your pathologist has spent a lot of time thinking about your care and making the right decision. Sometimes I'm asked uh, frequently about, about second opinions in, in pathology. My friends and family often ask me, should I get a second opinion on my diagnosis? And this can be really important. Uh, there's been a lot in the media about second opinions in pathology lately, so I thought I would take a minute just to address this. Um, part of what I do in my practice, and I actually have done this already today, is review glass slides from, from patients uh, that are coming to Mayo Clinic for treatment or a second medical opinion. And you know, we almost always agree with the outside diagnosis, but there are rare cases where we don't. And this has a significant impact on the decisions and treatments for, for these patients. In our review of data over a five-year period at Mayo Clinic, we changed the diagnosis less than 1% of the time uh, from the outside diagnosis. But this was over 400 patients in that time period. So I advise you to talk with your doctor about pathology second opinions to see if it is right for you. Um, as far as molecular testing, I'll move on to that. So pathologists are very involved in molecular testing at this point. Uh, pathologists review cancer tissue to make sure that there's enough tissue for molecular testing. They also advise other doctors, as Dr. Grella had mentioned, on how much tissue is needed. And they may be actually in the room when tissue is being obtained to communicate with the doctors uh, while the biopsy is being done about whether enough tissue has been obtained. After a good sample is obtained, the pathologists oversee the laboratories that are performing the molecular tests. Pathologists often review the results and create a report for other cancer doctors to use in treatment decisions. Cancer doctors might talk with the pathologist about the, what the results mean and what other tests might be ordered to help with a difficult clinical question. Pathologists may also uh, develop new tests as, as research discoveries are made, and this is something that I do in my everyday work. So with that, I hope I've given you a flavor of what pathologists do in cancer care and molecular testing, and I encourage you to, to seek out your pathologist if you ever have the opportunity. This is not very often done, but I sometimes do get calls from patients uh, and I have to verify that, you, that they are who they are before I can discuss private information. But, but find out more about what your pathologist does and, and seek out their, uh, their help with your care. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Kerr. And that is an excellent uh, advice for everybody to be aware of that, um, that pathologists are accessible and available and, um, that, and the critically important role that, uh, that pathologists play. And, and that you do have access to them. So thank you for noting that, Dr. Kerr. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Al Benson III. Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Clinical Investigations, Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center of Northwestern University. 
And Dr. Benson is going to address the benefits of diagnostic technologies, biomarkers, and precision medicine in predicting response to treatment, the role of precision medicine for people living with colon cancer, and questions to ask your healthcare team. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Benson. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, for the opportunity to join everyone today. The often stated overarching goal of precision medicine involves using diagnostic laboratory tests to identify specific biomarkers, such as genes or proteins, to deliver the right drug to the right patient at the right time. And this it has been a, a daunting challenge, but what has been so exciting, particularly in recent years, there have been drugs that have been identified that target specific biological aspects of a tumor, giving true benefit for patients. Typically, when, when we talk about these markers, people uh, refer to what we might identify in tumor tissue, but as Dr. Grala mentioned, Imaging can also be a biomarker and help us uh, identify uh, a given type of tumor or uh, a treatment effect that, that tells us that a given treatment is really working for the patient. And there's also a great deal of work going on now to identify markers in the bloodstream, which certainly would make uh, uh, evaluating, for example, tumor DNA in the bloodstream, much easier for patients, much more convenient, and something we could test uh, over time uh, to see if a given tumor was changing over time. This is a very important concept because many people think of a tumor cell as being one particular type of cell. Well, in fact, uh, unfortunately, tumors are collections of different cells, and this is referred to as tumor heterogeneity, and these cells can have different biological characteristics. In fact, within the same patient, you could have a tumor in one location, say the liver, another in the lung, and yet the biology of these tumor cells may be very different, and that becomes a challenge to identify the best therapeutic approach. And even among patients with the same diagnosis, say lung cancer or colon cancer, each individual patient may have the same overarching diagnosis, but in fact have different characteristics. What the, uh, the uh, past has emphasized has been the development of prognostic markers. And these can be very helpful because they can identify people who may be at high or low risk for a cancer recurrence. And this helps uh, guide therapeutic strategies as well as surveillance and uh, better identification of people who might um, benefit from uh, a therapeutic intervention. One of the greatest challenges, though, is the development of predictive markers. And these are markers that um, would actually predict a response uh, to a given treatment. And just to emphasize some of the other challenges, 
we've learned that we have to be very careful how we do biopsies, how we handle the tissue, how we store the tissue so that our diagnostic tests are uh, accurate. This has opened the door for uh, very uh, huge efforts uh, in computer technology because um, the uh, bioinformatics involved with uh, molecular markers, for example, is, uh, is uh, quite a daunting challenge. And so we are working hand-in-hand -hand with our IT uh, departments. Uh, in terms of uh, a specific example of colon cancer, we've made some progress in identifying markers, not as much as we would like, but in recent years we've identified a particular type of uh, mutation referred to as RAS mutation, and there are several components of RAS mutations, but um, what clinical research has shown us is that if a patient, in fact, has a mutation in the RAS pathway, and that uh, accounts for about 40% of all, or I'm sorry, now a higher number, closer to 50% of all colorectal cancer patients, those individuals are not likely to respond to a particular class of drugs called anti-EGFR therapy. And the two we use in colorectal cancer include uh, cetuximab and panituvimab. And so if we identify these mutations, we know that we should not give these drugs uh, to our patients. There's also a great deal of interest in another mutation called BRAF that represents about 10% of all colorectal cancer patients. Uh, and these individuals overall tend to do uh, a little less well with our therapies, and so there's a great deal of interest in developing new targeted therapies for these individuals, and in fact, we have clinical trials ongoing in colorectal cancer with drugs that we hope will offer improved benefit for individuals with the BRAF mutation. And there's one other marker referred to as mismatch repair, also referred to as microsatellite instability. Uh, patients with this particular uh, biological phenomenon tend to have quite a good uh, prognosis, but also um, there are some people with this marker who have an inherited type of colon cancer referred to as Lynch syndrome. And this is very important to identify because it affects how we care for an individual with Lynch syndrome, how we uh, offer surveillance for the individual over time, and also uh, we know then to uh, identify other family members who may be um, at risk for Lynch syndrome. So we, we have much more work to do in colon cancer, but there has been progress in identifying some markers, and this is an area of uh, great scientific interest. And finally, I was asked to comment briefly about questions to ask your healthcare team. And I think the the, the word here 
is communication, that it is absolutely essential that the individual patient and their families are communicating with their entire healthcare team. You should know uh, right up front who should be involved with your care, who are the members of your healthcare team. Are there different types of physicians, such as radiation oncologists, surgeons, medical oncologists? But also, you should think uh, very hard as to what services do you think you really need. Do you need dietary counseling? Do you need financial counseling? Can a social worker be of help to you? Or would you benefit from psychological counseling to handle the stress of the diagnosis, for example? And what's important is don't expect that your healthcare team will know everything that you would need. And, and communicating what would benefit you as an individual is critical, and this is not just at the beginning when you learn of your diagnosis, but also over time because your needs may change uh, over time. So we stress to individuals, take notes, make lists, be prepared when you meet your members of the healthcare team to discuss the issues that are, are most important uh, for you. Uh, and uh, with that, I'll conclude. Uh, thank you, Dr. Mesner. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Benson. That was very informative and excellent and eloquent and, and wonderful as always. So thank you. And I know there will be questions for you as well during the Q&A. And our next speaker um, actually is um, Dr. Charles Leprinzi. And Dr. Leprinzi is the Regis Professor of Breast Cancer Research, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. And Dr. Leprinzi is going to discuss the role of clinical trials, current application of biomarkers and precision medicine in the treatment of people living with breast cancer, and assessing hereditary risk. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Leprinzi. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure to be back speaking to this group. Uh, I'll talk about the first and the last things first, uh, uh, and that is the role of clinical trials. Virtually everything you've heard today is because of clinical trials that have been going on. So if there's an opportunity to participate in clinical trials, it's oftentimes cutting-edge medicine and a great thing to do. I'll leave it at there because we could talk for an hour about that, and she's only given me seven minutes to talk. Assessing hereditary risk, that's the other thing I'll briefly mention. Primarily family history and when knowing if other people in the family have had cancer, at what age they developed cancers, there are things such as BRCA1 and 2 genes that can be determined in appropriate patients, uh, but those are the main things with hereditary risk. Now, I'll spend the rest of the six minutes or so talking about current application of, of uh, precision medicine for breast cancer and go back to mention that in breast cancer area, we were doing this much before many of the other groups were, back in 18... In 1890, it was noted by a physician, Beetson, uh, who, who suggested that maybe taking out the ovaries of people who had breast cancer that was pretty prominent at that time would cause an, a, a good effect, and in fact, it caused shrinkage of breast cancers. It was 1958, uh, a half century later or so, when it was found out that there's an estrogen receptor, and we can determine which patients have estrogen receptors on their cancers, and therefore will have benefit from modifying the amount of estrogen or other hormones that are around for patients. So that's a very important thing for us. About 20 years ago or so came out another marker that came around, which is called HER2-NU. 
Uh, Denny Slayman was the person who was the cheerleader for this for a long time and found that there are drugs actually that will attack the HER2 new receptor, which occurs in about 20% of patients. In patients with HER2 new uh, receptors on their cancers, if they're not given anti-HER2 new treatments, i.e. if this was 20 or 30 years ago, they did poor, more poorly than did patients who did not have HER2 new receptors where everything else was equal in their tumors in terms of the size and the lymph nodes and that sort of thing. Now that we have HER2 new, anti-HER2 new drugs such as trastuzumab, otherwise known as Herceptin, and, and a couple of other drugs, <clears throat> pertuzumab, lapatinib, uh, and uh, trastuzumab emtanzine, uh, things have gotten much, much better for treatment of these patients, and this is, is because of the precision of knowing about this marker. Uh, let me turn a little bit to mention another thing, that there are tools available that in a patient with newly diagnosed breast cancer, and 90% or more of patients with newly diagnosed breast cancer have it localized to the breast, breast or the surrounding lymph node areas, and the goal of taking care of those patients is to try to cure the disease. We know that some patients can be cured with surgery alone, uh, but some patients then we also do radiation therapy, and sometimes we think about giving drug therapy and determining how to give the drug therapy, what drug to give, and if the person needs drug um, was developed, was, is because of different what we call prognostic tools. And there was a tool that came out about 10 years or 15 years ago called Adjuvant Online, which looks at whether the patients have estrogen or progesterone receptors on their cells, looks at the age of the patient, the size of the cancer, whether it's less than an inch or three or four inches or whatever it happens to be, whether there's lymph nodes involved from the cancer, and what the grade of the cancer uh, is, how it looks like, what it looks like under the microscope, what Dr. Kerr would tell us about. And from that can determine the prognosis uh, and also whether or not uh, treatment will be beneficial for a patient and whether that treatment would be hormonal therapy, which is basically anti-estrogen therapy, or chemotherapy, or both, so that therefore we can tell a patient information if they'd like to know numbers. There's a 80% chance your patient, I'm going to make this one up, an 80% chance your cancer would be cured with the surgery and radiation alone. We can improve that to 85% if we give anti-estrogen treatment, such as tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor, and we can improve that to 88%, <clears throat> excuse me, if we can if we also give chemotherapy in addition to the hormonal therapy. <clears throat> More recently, there's another genetic testing procedure where, which looks at the tumor itself and gets, uh, t looks at the genes that are expressed in those cancers with a test called Oncotype DX. And there are other similar ones, but this is the one that's used mostly in the United States. And there are data that uh, you send uh, this uh, sample off to someplace. It actually is, it costs money to do it. It's somewhere around $4,500 to get the test done. It will then differentiate whether patients have a low score versus an intermediate versus a high score. And the people with a low score, if you give them hormonal therapy alone, this is only for patients with hormone receptor positive cancers, estrogen receptor positive cancers. If you give them hormone therapy alone, the low score group does better than the intermediate score group than that does the high score group. And this is prognostic information, which can be helpful in some way. But even more interesting than that is something which we call predictive information. And it's different than just how a patient will do with a certain therapy, but rather, will a new therapy add benefit to that group? And we see that in patients with the low score group, that adding chemotherapy does not provide any additional advantage. 
uh, in the olden days when we looked at all patients with estrogen receptor positive breast cancers and we did a clinical trial and we uh, followed them along. After that, half the people got tamoxifen and the anti-estrogen therapy and half the people got that plus chemotherapy. That in terms of how they were doing 10 years later, the group that got chemotherapy, 5% more of the patients were doing well without any cancer. And that, therefore, that became a standard approach to give to these patients because there's 5% benefit. But then some people might say that means that 95% of people didn't get any benefit and only got the side effects from the chemotherapy, and that is true. With this low-score group, which a good proportion of the patients, 40% or so of the patients have low score, they don't get any benefit from chemotherapy. If you're in the high-score group, then you get about 20 percentage points benefit for chemotherapy, and that's only about 20% of the group or so that has the high score. So that you can figure out which of these patients uh, are more likely to get benefit from chemotherapy, therefore giving it to the right patients, decreasing the amount of toxicity that patients have all in all. So let me stop at that time because I know there's a, another presentation and then time for questions. Thank you very much, Dr. LePrincy. Very excellent, very informative, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, our next speaker is Ms. Carolyn Edlund. Ms. Edlund is an oncology social worker, and she is our online support group program director at Cancer Care. And Ms. Edlin is going to uh, address Cancer Care's free psychosocial support services and programs and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Edlin. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be part of the call today. I'd like to start by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with cancer and how Cancer Care can be a part of that network. There are many ways that we can help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer Care programs include individual counseling, support groups, education about resources, and how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help, and some limited financial assistance. All of our services are delivered by master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends, and are experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, physical, and financial challenges that arise after a diagnosis. Adjusting to and dealing with the diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. Asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. Cancer Care offers face-to-face -face groups in our local offices in the New York City area, as well as telephone and online groups. These groups offer a unique opportunity to talk with other people impacted by cancer, along with the help of a Cancer Care social worker to facilitate the group. Sharing information and understanding with others in similar situations can be a powerful experience. Group members offer encouragement and a sense of community that can provide you with additional support and guidance. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. As we've learned from today's program, there's a lot of information to digest and make sense of. Our social workers can help you understand what this all means for you and your family. A cancer care social worker can help you prioritize and consider the questions that you might want to ask to get the answers and information you need. Please remember that you are not alone. Cancer care services are there to help you. So please contact us at 
4673 or log on to our website at www.cancercare.org for more information about our oncology social work support. Uh, thank you for your attention and the opportunity to speak today. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Caroline. That was wonderful. And the wonderful resources for people to take advantage of at Cancer Care. We encourage you to, to call our 800 number at 1-800-813-HOPE for those services. And now we have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask Stephanie to bring all of our speakers on board. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And um, if we don't get to your questions, at the end of the call, I'll explain to you how Area, different ways that you can get answers to your questions that we didn't get to ask today. So, um, Stephanie? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchstone telephone. And we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, the question is, so what should I ask my doctor about biomarkers? So um, Dr. Grawa, could you address this in a general way? Well, I, I think that is kind of a general question. I think it's uh, a very good question to ask your doctor, are there biomarkers or special studies that can be done um, that will make it um, um, more precise for my treatment. And the doctor, as Dr. Loprinzi has gone over the treatment of breast cancer, the doctor can then explain that. In lung cancer, there are certain areas, and uh, as Dr. Benson's talked about in colon cancer. So in many cancers, the answers will be yes, and the doctor will explain that to you. And of course, we're talking about individualizing care. So for every malignancy in every person, there will be reasons why this may or may not be likely. Sometimes you hear advertisements for hospitals and cancer centers, and some of them I've even heard recently feature the fact that they offer genomic testing. To the best of my knowledge, basically every, every modern hospital and every modern oncologist uh, is, is very much committed to this approach. So it is not unusual if you're at a good place and a... Um, and uh, uh, with a, a good modern doctor, that this will be part of your workup. You certainly should ask your doctor about that. And uh, as Dr. Kerr indicated, very often she may get second opinions or recommend second opinions to do that, and that very much includes the pathology specimens and sometimes the uh, various imaging tests as well. So it's a great question to ask your doctor, and uh, since it's very individualized, your doctor will be happy to answer it. Thank you. Um, excellent question and one wonderful answer. Um, and then the next question, which is uh, similar but um, slightly uh, another component of this, is do you recommend genomic testing? Um, so um, uh, Dr. Benson, could you address that question? Yes. Yeah, so um, there are centers um, who now are routinely doing uh, gene sequencing on a high percentage of their patients. And this is becoming more and more commonly done. There are more and more diagnostic laboratories being set up, and many of our hospitals are uh, routinely performing uh, a whole series of different molecular uh, 
tests. Um, what I think we, we have to inform people uh, who might, for example, have genomic sequencing that there may be many components of the test results for which we do not yet have a drug or a treatment strategy. However, this information over time may become incredibly important in identifying new strategies. Uh, nowadays, uh, many of our clinical trials require at least a component of gene testing either on individual tumor specimens, in fact, more and more patients are being asked to have repeat biopsies, particularly for those who've already had different treatments to get a fresh look at the tumor biology and to see if there is a, uh, an alternative strategy for treatment. Many of us are, are uh, uh, participating in some of the new trials, uh, both through the National Cancer Institute um, as well as through the pharmaceutical industry, and often in partnership where everyone is working together, where we're conducting trials where we look at a biological profile, and it may not even matter what disease, whether it's colon cancer or lung cancer or breast cancer, but if there is a particular biological pathway, that individual will be assigned a drug that is designed to uh, affect that pathway and what we hope improve uh, the response rate and, and some of these are given as drugs by themselves, and some are given in combinations. But um, people do have to understand, I think, that this is enormously complex, that they may have genomic sequencing, and we won't have a, a particular treatment uh, for them. And it may require uh, that biopsies are taken over time so we can look for uh, changes over time. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, and our next question, uh, Stephanie? Our next question comes from Regina G. Your line is open. Hi. Uh, my question is twofold. I come from a generation of parents who never used the word cancer other than CA, and it was always hushed. So it's very important to me to um, hear about the ONCA testing, which my surgeon did do. So my question on ONCA is, is my score predictive of only breast cancer or any other cancers that I might be prone to, the, since I don't know what they are? Um, the second part of my question is, if one has a low score, is it still beneficial to, well, I'm sure it is, to control your diet. What is the role then of your score versus sugar, body fat, alcohol, uh, et cetera, if you have a low score? Are, are we more genes or are we more what we do? Regina, that's a, kind of a Nobel Prize question here. Excellent. Thank you for that question. Um, I'm going to ask Dr. LaPrinzi if you could address this question, um, it's a twofold question. Um, 
um, but seems to have some uh, question about oncotype testing, and then of course the lifestyle issue in terms of how much does our lifestyle contribute, which is a these are complex questions. So, Dr. Lapinzi, would you begin with them anyway? Thanks. Yes, I can try. I, I see it made more like about a tenfold question as opposed <laughs> to twofold, but then I've got seven sisters. So, uh, here's uh, here's the thing. One, I was talking about Oncotype DX testing, which is done by looking at cancer cells from somebody who has breast cancer, um, and then determining, you know, what's the chance of it. Uh, coming back and what's the chance of it, uh, you needing chemotherapy and that sort of thing. I think what this, what this uh, questioner asking is a different thing, and oncotesting must be some name of a test that's done to determine if a patient is at risk for cancer. And so uh, uh, there are various tests that can be done there um, in, in different, the whether to get a test, which it's usually not recommended to do it for all patients because or all tests, there are what we call false positives and false negatives, and the test is abnormal, even though there's not an abnormal problem in the particular patient uh, for things. Um, but we, if people are at risk for the cancer based primarily on family history, um, then getting to see a genetic counselor and getting specific testing, such as BRCA1 or BRCA2, which is for breast cancer, and there are hereditary colon cancer tests, and there are a variety of these things, up to 30, 40, or 50 genes. They're sometimes obtained in a panel. So that might be what this patient had under the name of uh, oncotesting. Now, having said that, and so that might help to differentiate whether a person's risk is much higher than, than normal or not. Now, uh, what can a person do to help prevent getting cancers? Controlling diet and controlling weight, weight is one of the things that's widely recommended, makes sense for patients with breast cancer, um, at risk for breast cancer and other cancers, and it's good health, health also. Um, uh, uh, so that control of, so the diet and, and exercise also is a thing that there are data suggesting that people will do better and less problem with, ca with cancer. Alcohol, there are data that demonstrates that once a person, that people who drink more alcohol have a higher chance of getting breast cancer than people who don't drink alcohol, uh, and more alcohol might be more risk for that. Um, it's interesting, though, that alcohol, moderate amounts of alcohol, can decrease dying from heart disease, and so that can help balance things out. Um, for patients who have been diagnosed with breast cancer, the question is, you know, can I ever have a glass of wine or not? And there are pretty good data that's come out uh, more recently than, than, than other data that suggests that after a person's diagnosed with breast cancer, that, having, that moderate alcohol intake does not appear to affect survival, it, partly because it balances out the fact that it hel it's helpful for heart uh, issues. For a person who's not drinking, we don't recommend they start drinking for that sort of reason. So those are the th my thoughts on those things. I guess the last thing is, it, is it's genetics or it's environment. It's, it's both and to varying degrees in different people. Excellent. And um, also, um, would um, anyone on our panel just want to discuss just the um, just the regular screenings that people have or annual checkups? Um, uh, so, um, I guess Dr. Benson, could you address just the concept of just I guess general uh, physician checkups and some other routine kind of screening tests that people have done in general, even having an internist or gynecologist or um, urologists, different doctors that people would see um, as part of screening at different points in their life cycle? <clears throat> well, I think it, it's very, very important um, for people to talk about 
two aspects here with their primary care physicians. One is, and this is being emphasized over and over again now, you, you should really understand your family history. And if you don't know it and you have access to family members, it's important to uh, understand uh, who's had diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, who's had cancer, and what type of cancer, and also at what age did they have their cancers. These all can be very, very important. And um, too often, family histories are incomplete. And we really need to emphasize understanding of the family history because that can be uh, an important component of making screening decisions. The second component in general is you should discuss with your primary care physician what are the uh, screening guidelines for cancer and at what age uh, should screening begin. So, for example, for many individuals, we start screening for colon cancer at age 50 because if you look at who, at least in the past, was more likely to have a colon cancer, it was individuals in their 60s and 70s. And so if you start screening at age 50, uh, you're much more likely to identify a polyp, remove it, and prevent the eventual development of colon cancer. Now, I wish it was that easy. It isn't because what we're now seeing is an increasing incidence of younger people with colon cancer, and these are not individuals uh, for whom we can identify a family link. So we can't say they have inherited colon cancers. In general, inherited colon cancers do begin at younger ages. And so now, because we're seeing more younger people with colon cancer, we're going to have to figure out why. Why is this happening, and is there a way we can screen people? But what we are advising, if a young person has a symptom such as bleeding, they need to see their doctor and uh, address it. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, do you have a specialist that can address environmental counseling to assist with prevention of cancer, such as chemicals and toxins used in the environment. So, uh, Dr. Crowley, can you just address this in a general way in terms of the concept of environmental um, issues? I know that's really a huge topic and it would merit its own conference call, but if you could just comment on this. Um, in well, I, I would say that that is not really part of this uh, conversation today of, of precision medicine or, or newer diagnostic techniques. Uh, my colleagues could uh, answer that. There is a lot known about environmental factors like asbestos, like tobacco, um, like hormone replacement therapy, and much more. Um, there is a lot of information, and large medical centers do understand that, and also municipalities uh, uh, understand that as well. But I don't think that's exactly what we're talking about as the major part of uh, diagnostic therapy uh, techniques or, or precision medicine. Obviously, environmental factors and personal environmental factors are, are very, very important. Excellent. 
excellent, excellent point. It's actually, um, it's, um, thank you. Um, but I hope that helps, um, uh, helps you, Mary, in terms of just thinking this through a bit more. Um, we also have a question um, for uh, Dr. Prinzi. Um, um, recently, I'm hearing about a group of breast tests referred as symphony. Can you speak to this? Is it beneficial to those with less definite oncotype score? Um, Dr. Laprinzi, can you address this and explain what that symphony test is? And symphony. Uh, I guess my quick answer is no, I'm not familiar with that. It might be the name of something that I know is a different name, but I'm not familiar with that. Are there other tests besides oncotype tests that perhaps this... Yeah. Oh, yes, there are other tests besides Oncotype DS, DX testing. Uh, many of them have been developed over in Europe. Some of them were, were tests that needed to be done looking that on frozen section tumors, so cancer right at the time when the operation is done, they have to send it to the lab, as opposed to preserving the tissue that we usually do with some sort of a pickle spicing sort of thing, uh, a process, pick, pickling process we do with its cancer so it doesn't disintegrate over time. Um, most of the other testings can help determine prognosis. Prognosis, what's the, how the patient is likely to do, but they haven't been shown with near the degree of certainty in terms of predictive how different treatments affect uh, how the cancer's uh, going to do. And so that's why in the United States most of what's being done is Oncotype DX testing. Excellent. Thank you. And we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, I was told that melanoma is more difficult than other cancers to diagnose. Why is that? And Dr. Kerr, could you address that in terms of just the pathology aspect of this? Oh, sure. Uh, so I can talk about that in a general way. Um, melanoma, uh, sometimes if it's unexpected, for instance, if, if a skin mole was never identified, sometimes uh, melanomas can, can look very much like uh, other overlapping cancers. And so pathologists have to be, have sort of an awareness about what the very many faces of melanoma and make sure that we do additional tests to, to make the diagnosis, which sometimes includes tests called immunohistochemistry, uh, to make sure that the cells are acting like uh, melanocytes, which are the cells in your skin that, that uh, cause pigmentation. Um, so yeah, sometimes it can be challenging to make the diagnosis. I would say more commonly than not, though, it's usually pretty straightforward, especially if there's um, been a history of, of a lesion on the skin. Uh, or if the morphology is more typical. And I have one other question for you as well. Um, uh, the caller asked that you had mentioned sometimes there's a change in diagnoses from a second opinion. What is the protocol if this is the case? Yeah, that's a really good question, uh, and it's something that I have to deal with uh, on, you know, not a too frequent basis, but, you know, these cases come up where, uh, either I've made a diagnosis that differs with the primary diagnosis, or perhaps I've made a diagnosis that someone else disagrees with on a, on a very difficult case. I can tell you in our practice, whenever there's a disagreement, uh, what, what usually happens is uh, we go to the, the person who made the diagnosis and, and let them know of our disagreement. We might even show the case around to uh, others of our colleagues and make sure that we have a good consensus about the diagnosis. Uh, and so for me to overturn a diagnosis, say, from an outside pathologist, I'm actually required within our practice to share the slides with a colleague and make sure that we have good consensus before we would change another pathologist's diagnosis. 
Um, during our review of data in that scenario where we disagreed with an outside diagnosis in rare cases, uh, we were right uh, at Mayo Clinic over 90% of the time, but there were rare cases where the outside diagnosis, the first diagnosis was actually right. And so, you know, there are some cases that even might require a third opinion if it's, it's, if it's really difficult. Excellent. Thank you very much. It's very helpful. And um, we have a question um, on colorectal cancer. Dr. Benson, um, um, I'm a patient with colorectal cancer. Should I have my adult children tested for biomarkers? Dr. Benson. So um, the majority of colorectal cancer patients uh, do not have at least an abnormal gene we can identify. There are about 30% of people where we think there's at least some familial uh, link. So um, it is important for, uh, so for example, a person's children to know their, their parents' history. And um, it, it, it can affect, the, the age when the cancer is diagnosed can affect when the children should be screened. However, uh, taking a more detailed family history to determine if there's a pattern there where a genetic counselor should become involved is very important to sort out. And um, we, we don't hesitate to refer people to genetic counselors. And if, if it looks like there is the possibility of an inherited cancer, then the blood test is done. Uh, to determine that. Uh, there's also, uh, I mentioned microsatellite instability testing. Uh, that can give us a hint on a person's tumor. Uh, it does not necessarily mean that someone who has a positive microsatellite instability test has an inherited cancer because we know there are those who are positive who do not have an inherited cancer, but it's a quick way to begin to sort out uh, whether there's at least a potential risk of an inherited uh, uh, cancer. So uh, it's important to discuss with the doctor what the risks are. Excellent. Thank you very much. And um, we have one last question we'll take. Um, it's a question about um, opinions of about at-home genetic testing kits. Are these reliable for me to use? Um, I realize that's a very huge question. Um, and um, I, Dr. Um, Curry, I wonder if you could just address it in a general way um, um, yeah, about sure. this. And, okay, thank you. Yeah, so that's an excellent question. I, I think um, there are at-home tests that, that are certainly advertised and can be used for things like uh, you know, determining your risk of developing diabetes, and some of those actually include cystic fibrosis screening, and you know, there's all kinds of things out there. And I, you know, I, I know some of my colleagues actually just for fun kind of order these every once in a while just to see what information they'll get back. Um, but I think you have to be very careful about making sure that uh, it, the laboratory that's doing your testing is reputable, and I, I strongly recommend going through a doctor when ordering these types of tests because they can help you to interpret really complex results uh, and give you guidance on whether a laboratory is reputable or not. Excellent. 
Well, I want to thank our speakers today. You've been extraordinary. This is quite an amazing um, panel of experts that we have today. I, I, I think you all can recognize that, and I want to thank you. I want to thank all of you who asked such wonderful questions as well, um, which then allowed you to get some additional information. And I want to thank all of you who have been listening. I do want to remind you that this is a one-hour workshop, and that in planning a program like this, we recognize that you have many needs that go far beyond the scope of one hour. For those of you who have a medical question that you didn't get to ask, I encourage you to contact the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237. And I'll repeat that number, 1-800-422-6237. And they have information specialists that are there to address any medical questions that you may have or questions about your cancer that you may have or cancer-related questions. For anyone who is requesting help from cancer care, from our oncology social workers in terms of either practical or financial assistance or counseling or support groups or more information about our workshops that we're offering, please call 1-800-813-4673. I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect, and everyone have a wonderful day.